0: A few weeks ago, I had to go and pick up Gracie from her grandparents' house, and unfortunately, things went amiss. We had an afternoon plan where she and I were going to do a lot of fun things together, and yet, when I went to pick her up, I realized that some hard discipline was in order. And when you have this little creature of love that brings you just unbridled joy and happiness, like perhaps no other person, and, I, and I've told you before that there's probably more love in that little bitty 35 pound frame than anything I've ever seen before in my life. And so when you have to bring hard discipline into the life of that beautiful blue eyed treasure, it's painful, isn't it? It's painful. And many of you fathers on this Father's Day this is something that that you can relate to as it was something that I knew was unavoidable that if I'm going to raise her to be the young woman that the Lord has molded her to be, if I'm going to protect her from potential destruction and catastrophe, if I'm going to protect her from her own self-deception, that this discipline is necessary, even though I want to turn a blind eye, and even though I really just wanted to go on with our afternoon plans. And so as we walked through that afternoon together... I think it bothered me, honestly, more than it bothered her. And I'd talked with Megan, and Megan's like, Cody, it's okay. It's okay. You did what had to be done. It is, it is okay. It's right and reasonable and good. But proper discipline comes from love, doesn't it? Proper discipline. Comes from love. It is not venting. It, it, it is not getting and letting off steam. It, it, it's not to to kind of figure out how to ex- exacerbate the, the the emotions that you're feeling or to provoke your children. It is to demonstrate love in their lives even at cost to yourself, even though it is painful to you. And as we come into Matthew 23, as we read Matthew 23, as we read the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, this is how we should understand them. That Jesus is here speaking, and He is speaking as the great prophet And speaking as the great prophet, he is speaking words that are hard and words that are difficult and words that are condemning and judgmental and words that frankly are going to bring devastation to his people. But they are not words in which Jesus is simply blowing off steam or letting out venom. They are words that are coming from Jesus because Jesus loves his people. Because Jesus loves his people. And because Jesus loves his glory. And because Jesus loves holiness. So Jesus coming from a place of compassion. Coming from a place of mercy. Coming from a place of love comes to them as the great prophet with a final plea to shock them, to speak to them, to let them know what future was coming their way so that they could understand the judgment that their wickedness had brought upon their house. These are words of discipline coming from a loving God through the mouth of the great prophets. If you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 23. We'll begin in verse 13. You might notice something odd as we're reading. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but you'll notice if your translation might be different than mine. Mine just has it at the bottom of the page, but there's not going to be a verse 14, or if there is a verse 14, it might be in brackets. The reason for that is that most of the reliable manuscripts that we have way back as close as we can get to the time of Jesus. Do not have that or place that in the time of Jesus. We think that scribes, some scribes added that later on to kind of try to bring alignment between this book and the book of Mark and the book of Luke, which does have this So if you have verse 14, like if you have a King James Bible and it's in there, that's probably really the words of Jesus. But it's the words of Jesus that are quoted in Mark and the words of Jesus that are quoted in Luke. It just wasn't intended to be in Matthew. So if you're wondering why your Bible may go from 13 to 15, and now that's kind of weird. If you'll look at the bottom in the fine print, you'll see it there. Or your Bible may have it in brackets there, which is letting you know that the editors of that Bible or... The, the translators of that Bible don't believe that to be original content. So, if you are there in Matthew chapter 23, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 23, we'll begin in verse 13. This is going to be quite a bit of reading. We're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter and we'll finish it today. It says, Woe to you blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guys, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some who you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So Jesus comes in Matthew 23 and he turns and he pivots from this conversation, these ongoing conversations that he's been having with the scribes and the Pharisees. And he begins by addressing his disciples and addressing the crowd to let them know what they, he is seeing in the Pharisees he must not see in the lives of his disciples. He must not see in the life of his church. He must not find it true in his people. But when we come to verse 13, he goes and he begins to address the scribes and the Pharisees directly. Now, over the last two weeks, you've probably heard me address Jesus, or call Jesus directly, the great prophet. And I've done that intentionally. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it promised that there would be a new prophet that would come. A new prophet that would come in the image of Moses, like Moses. But he would be greater than Moses. And it was a, a messianic Prophecy, uh, looking forward to the one who would come as the deliverer of God's people. As Moses had delivered God's people from Exodus, this Messiah would deliver God's people from his sin, from their sin. And Jesus is this long-awaited new prophet. Jesus is this long-awaited greater Moses, and he has come to his people. When a prophet spoke, They spoke on behalf of God and they spoke one of two things. They came and they either spoke word of blessing or they spoke a word of judgment. And frequently when they spoke a word of judgment, it followed a formula in which they would begin by saying, Woe to you. Woe to you. You have God against you. Your sin has demanded God take decisive action. And so here we have Jesus, the great prophet sent as the one who was the greater Moses to come. And he is speaking a word of clear condemnation, a word of clear judgment as he comes to his people. And he speaks in seven woe to you statements. Jesus does not make it difficult for us to decipher why it is that he has come to bring judgment upon his people, though, does he? He doesn't make it unclear. That's one of the things I appreciate about Jesus in moments like this. Jesus doesn't leave us wondering. Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark. Jesus does not speak ambiguously. Because as often as Jesus says, hypocrite, or or almost as often as Jesus says, woe to you, he says that seven times. Six of those times, he addresses the the Pharisees, the scribes, comma, hypocrites. Hypocrites. The only exception coming in verse 15, when he, says, when he says blind gods, which is not exactly a particularly flattering exception. And so we know that the judgment that he is bringing upon the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, he is, he is bringing upon it because he has been compelled by their hypocrisy. That they are wearing masks. That they are masquerading with false religion. They are masquerading as people who fancy themselves as those who love God's word. Who are revivalists among God's people. Who are bringing a conservative resurgence among all of Israel to return to God's law. And yet, in, inwardly, they do not love God Inwardly, their hearts are hardened toward the law of God. Inwardly, their hearts are hardened and cold toward God Himself, that they are experts on the things that are minor, and yet they are missing the things that are most significant. And so their hypocrisy has provoked now the judgment of God spoken through His Son, the great prophets. Now, what's interesting. When we think about judgment in our day, we typically begin by thinking about the great sins of our day. When we think about judgment in our day, our minds begin to go to the LGBT movement. When we think about the judgment of God, our minds begin to go to things like abortion, which is morally evil. Our minds began to go to people who live and live in ways that are are godless and pagan, evangelistic atheists. But none of these men would have fit those categories. Certainly, in the Roman Empire, within Rome, those people were there. Even among the Jewish Jewish immigrants, or or, or as the Jewish people had been assimilated into the Roman Empire, many of them had been caught up in the Roman prosperity and began to be won over by all of the things that Rome had had to offer, but not the Pharisees and the scribes. Not the Pharisees and the scribes. These men were not... We're not men that were staying up late and going and going from bar to bar to bar. They were not in frat houses surrounded by stacks of beer cans. They were not in the middle of homosexual affairs. Now these were men that would have been members of a Baptist church who would have worn their shirt tucked in. They would have been a member of the volunteer fire department. They would have always shown up to work on time. The community would have honored them as a good husband and a good dad and an upstanding citizen. From the outside, it appeared that they were pious. It appeared that they were godly. Their Bibles would have appeared well worn. Their church attendance would have been perfect. They would have had Scripture memorized. They would have held offices in the life of the church. They would have been deacons and elders and teachers. And yet, the harshest words, the harshest words that we have recorded in all of the gospel accounts by Jesus Christ Himself are reserved for them. Reserved for them. Religious fakes. Religious fakes. People who fancy themselves as people of God. People who are filled with external religion and yet are inwardly dead. People who who put on a mask that makes others think they love God and walk with God and know God. And yet inwardly they are far from God. And inwardly they are resentful toward all of the things that that they are doing to begin with. And you know what's most terrifying about the position of the Pharisees and the scribes? Is they believed that they were right. They believed they were right. They believed that they were God's favorites. They, they believed they had restored integrity to God's people. They believed they had restored character to God's people. They were the revivalists of their day. They were the people that upheld the Bible in their day. They were those people. And so they believed themselves to be those that had called the people back to God's law. And so they saw themselves as being the ones that God would have taken out of his own people, put up on a pedestal and said, I just wish everybody else would be like them. I can't imagine a position more terrifying than that one. I can't imagine a position more terrifying than believing that you are right with God. Believing that you are close with God. Believing that you have the favor of God all while God is against you. I'm here to tell you that I don't believe that there is a more destructive or a more catastrophic position that a man or a woman or a boy or a girl or a teenager can have than to believe that they are right with God and that they are good with God and that they have the favor of God all while God is against them. And that Jesus is looking to these Pharisees and he is saying, you religious fakes, your hypocrisy betrays you. Your hypocrisy proves that God will not tolerate you. See, there is a, a cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer would say, in the life of the church today. There is a cheap grace now because we have heard for so long that the church is filled with hypocrites. And so now our patented response has been, of course there's, the church is filled with hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. Everybody's a hypocrite. And y'all, there's so much truth in that. There's so much liberty in that. There's so much reality in that because I am a hypocrite. The most difficult part of preaching to you every single week is that I cannot live up to the standard that I preach. And if I'm preaching a standard which I, I, I am capable of living, I'm not preaching high enough. But what happens? What happens? The reason it's a half truth, the reason it's, it's cheap grace is that we use it to excuse and to justify our hypocrisy rather than letting it call us back to repentance. That we have become too accustomed. We have become too comfortable by going to the world and saying, look, I'm a sinner too, I'm a hypocrite too, so that's okay. It's okay that I'm not right with God. It's okay that I'm a religious fake. It's it's okay that I don't work walk closely with God. It's okay that I'm not seeking to advance the kingdom of God. It's okay that I'm not seeking to advance the cause of my own holiness and my own godliness. It's okay that I have this area out of alignment, and this area out of alignment, and this area out of alignment alignment with the will of God because I'm a hypocrite just like everybody else is a hypocrite. Brothers and sisters, the gospel will not leave you in despair if that is where you are. Grace is available to you, but the Bible also teaches that grace and mercy of Christ comes to those who are broken over their sin, and repentant of their sin, and contrite over their sin, that you cannot rest in your hypocrisy, you cannot justify your hypocrisy, that if you are filled with self-excuse and self-justification and self-sufficiency of your sin and of your hypocrisy, then you are far from grace. That the grace of Christ is available to you when you humble yourself in your sin and you realize that it was your sin that murdered Him and executed Him and it was your sin that brought Him from the throne of heaven to the cross on Calvary. This morning, don't justify your sin. That's what the Pharisees do. Don't excuse your hypocrisy? That's what the Pharisees do. Instead, be repentant and draw near to Christ. And if you draw near to Christ, what you will find there is mercy. And what you will find there is the Holy Spirit saying, come, let me give you strength. Let me give you power. Let me make you holy. If you look at the, the statements that Jesus made, there's a lot of them there. There's seven and we should look at them, and I think if you, if you look, and you, you, you'll see a two-by-two-by-two by two by two crescendo on the last one. So a two-by-two-by-two, by two by two, and then the climax on the seventh. So, so that, that, that is that, that the first two go together, the second two go together, the third two go together, and then that final one kind of tells them and, and, and gives them instruction on where they're going to go. That what Jesus is doing in these woe-to-you statements is Jesus is giving a description of hypocrisy. Jesus is giving a description of and, and painting a picture in just gross to tell of the kind of hypocrisy that he sees in the lives of the Pharisees. So let's look at those first two together, in which he says, um, let me turn back my page here, where he says in verses 13 and 14, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And so what we see about the Pharisees is that the Pharisees led people away from God. The hypocrites lead people away from God. That, that Jesus envisions, or, or he, he paints the picture of a door, of a gate. And that they are the keepers of this gate as his people, as the teachers of his law, as the leaders of his temple. That they are the keepers of, of this gate. They are the keepers of this door. And that they are the ones that open this door by the teaching of his law, by the reaching of other people, by the making of proselytes, the making of converts so that other people can come into the kingdom of God and know the kindness of God and know the glory of God and have relationship with God. But again and again, what you find in the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes is rather than opening the door so that men and women and boys and girls can come into relationship with God, they were slamming the gate shut. They were slamming the gate shut. Now we might be, our our default might be to think of the Pharisees and the scribes the way that we think of ourselves. That perhaps the reason that that they were leading people away from God or perhaps the reason they were shutting the door in the faces of people so that people couldn't come into the kingdom of God is because they were lazy. It's because they didn't tell people about God. It's because they they didn't go out and seek to make disciples in their community and of all nations. But Jesus dispels that quickly, doesn't he? Instead, Jesus says that these people were zealous, that they were earnest, that they were sincere, that they had greatest, greater evangelistic fervor than pretty much any Christian that I've ever met. You, it says that, that they go over land and sea. Like, man, if there would have been airplanes, they would have been in airplanes. If there would have been boats, they were in boats. Man, if there were hang gliders, they were hang gliding to go tell people to make, make them. And it says if it's just for one, right? Just for one. You know, I don't know that if Swaziland had a population of one, that I would be getting on an airplane to go there at the end of August. I don't know that. But they were going. They were going, if there was just one, just to make one convert, just to make one proselyte. It shows zeal and energy and work and conviction and commitment. But in going, they were going, and Eugene Peterson in the message, he says, and those that they made, the convert, converts that they made, were double damned. Twice as much a child of hell. Why? They were not teaching people the kingdom of God. They were not teaching people the truth about God's law. Instead, they were teaching people to become more like them. They were making new versions of themselves. And in the process, they were not teaching what God's law had said. Instead, they were teaching their version of God's law. And in the process, concealing Christ concealing the gospel concealing the truth about who Jesus was and when you conceal the truth about how Jesus was because they didn't accept who Jesus was and by concealing who Jesus was all the converts that they made all the people that they talked all the evangelistic fervor that they had it was all wasted because they were leading people, not into salvation, but they were leading people under, into a knowledge of God's law that would lead, in fact, to a greater judgment so that on judgment day, all of their converts would stand before the judgment seat and God would say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Hypocrisy always leads people away from God. Hypocrisy always leads people away. Away from God. These men said that they loved God's word. They said they would observe God's word more than anybody else. They said that they would study God's word more than anybody else. And yet, Luke 24 teaches us that the entirety of the Old Testament is just like the entirety of the New Testament, that all of it is about Christ, all of it is about Jesus, all of it is about redemption. All of it is about the gospel. So they were hypocrites. They said they loved God's word. They said they knew God's word. They said they observed God's word, but they didn't know it. They didn't observe it. They didn't understand it. They didn't teach it. And by neglecting all of those things in their hypocrisy, led men and women and whole families away from the truth about God. Our hypocrisy is the same way, brothers and sisters. That when we live lives as religious fakes, when we live lives that are characterized by double standards and self-righteous mass, when we try to put a a marble facade on a broken down, rusted out shed, it conceals the gospel, and it conceals Christ, and it leads people away from the truth. In the church, I I can name at least two kinds of churches that I believe are living this kind of hypocritical life and that we should guard ourselves against. The first would be the self-righteous church. The self-righteous church. The Pharisees were so self-righteous. They believed that none could walk with God the way that they could walk with God. And so they maximized the sin of others. And yet, they found ways to minimize their own sin. In Matthew chapter Jesus says that it was like they would go and they would find the speck in your eye, and yet they would not They would ignore the plank in their own eye. And that's what self-righteous churches do. They stand on bully pulpits and they wave their finger at the culture and they point out all of the specks that are wrong with the culture and they maximize the sin of the culture and yet they ignore all of the planks in their own eye, minimizing their own sin. And by doing so, so, they forfeit their gospel witness. They conceal the gospel. They conceal grace. They conceal mercy. They conceal the truth. They manipulate the truth to be something other than it actually is. And their integrity is compromised. Their witness is compromised. Their worship is false. The second kind of church that we would see is the secular church. The secular church. This is the kind of church that they seek to blend into the culture rather than standing against the culture, except that they too are wearing a mask, because they go to the world and they tell the world that we have the answers that you're looking for. We have all the things that you've been seeking. We have all the things that can answer all of life's questions. We have what the world can't give you, except by offering what the world can't give you, they they dilute their message and camouflage their message by looking just like the world. And the world looks in and thinks, why in the world would I go to a place that looks just like me and look for an answer that is supposed to be beyond me? And they forfeit the power of the gospel and submarine the message of the gospel by their own hypocrisy. Brothers and sisters, we must be honest about ourselves. We must neither go to self-righteousness or to secularization. We must instead say in the true gospel and preach the gospel wholly and fully from Old Testament to New and proclaim the truth about who Christ is, not just in words, but in our lives with integrity and character of who Christ has called us to be. The second... the second thing that we see about the Pharisees is that the Pharisees used the letter of the law to violate the spirit of the law. The Pharisees used the letter of the law to violate the spirit of the law. Listen, look in verse 16. It says, "'Woe to you blind gods, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath.'" You blind fools.'" For which is greater, the gold of the t- or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that made the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it, and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So these next two, what we see that they have in common is they are both relating to God's word itself, relating to God's law itself. Jesus first, if you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, I think so much of the Sermon on the Mount is a response to the teachings and to the lifestyles and to the hypocrisy that is found in the Pharisees to begin with. And Jesus tells us, what? That your yes should be yes, and your no should be no. No, Don't don't have to go and say, I make an oath. Don't go and say, I make a promise. No, yes means yes, no means no. Why? The Pharisees would make, they, they had come up with a tradition. They had come up with all of these ways in which if you made an oath by this particular item, you were bound to your word. If you made an oath by a different item in the temple, though, you might have some flexibility on your word. You could compromise on something that you had said, and it wouldn't be considered that you were actually lying. So it was a way that they could justify being dishonest. It was a way that they could find a loophole to feel better about their own dishonesty. And this falls perfectly in line with the character of the Pharisees. What they would often do is the Pharisees would drill in on the minutiae of the law on the on the fine print of the law they would go down on the smallest parts of the law and they would so obsess over it and they would they would so so study it that they would they would memorize it and figure it out so that they would be able to get you on technicalities or so that they would be able to let themselves off the hook on technicality so they would stand and they would teach it and they would preach it but then when they were living it they would find ways to let themselves live easier lives they would find them ways to let themselves apply the law that would be much more palatable much more much easier because they knew the letter of the law and they knew they knew the little bitty details they knew all of the loopholes and it is a surefire mark of hypocrisy. It is a surefire mark of hypocrisy if you look for loopholes to make you feel better about your most common sins. It is a surefire mark of hypocrisy if you go searching for loopholes, if you go looking for self justification and self excuse to make yourself feel better about all of the different sins especially your most common sins in your life and this is what the pharisees did they would take god's law and they would be what they would portray themselves as being great teachers of god law god's law they would portray themselves as being great lovers of god's law and yet being great lovers of god's law being great teachers of god's law they would manipulate god's law to make their own lives easier what about you what about you do you like to, to look down and drill down on and try to skate on technicalities? You know, I know of a lot of, of, of adult people, adult Christians, who are in romantic relationships, and they live as though, as though God's sexual standard is different based on age. That, that teenagers and college students, they really should abstain from sexual immorality but adults that have been previously married or adults that get to a certain stage of life it's different from them it's a loophole it's a loophole pornography is very often viewed the same way it's not a physical act right i can drill down i can't find the word pornography in the bible although the greek word for sexual immorality is porneo so you you kind of can. Uh, but I can drill down into the, the, the New Testament, and I don't, I don't see computers here anywhere, right? And, and it's kind of like a, a victimless crime, except that you are objectifying God's image bearer. And in 1 in, uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, God's word calls that transgressing against your brother. So you're looking for a loophole. You're looking for a loophole. You 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 start cheating on your time clock just a little, your time card just a little bit, right? You you cheat on your taxes just a little bit, and it's the government, and you probably are getting charged too much anyway, and he's probably working you too much anyway, and he's not really paying you enough anyway, and you go to God's law, and you you figure out, and you have all of this logic and all of this rationale in your mind, right? Loopholes. And so again and again you figure out ways to tell lies in which you convince yourself it's not lies. You go to your favorite sins. Maybe it's overeating, maybe it's gossiping. It can be any number of things. And you find different ways to alleviate yourself and to justify yourself and to excuse yourself by manipulating God's law or manipulating the your understanding and definition of God's grace and God's mercy to alleviate yourself from God's judgment and brothers and sisters what you must see is that Jesus finds this kind of religious hypocrisy intolerable intolerable this is manipulation of God's word an abuse of God's kindness is exactly what the Pharisees this other, the other part of this, he says that what they would do is they would major in the minors, right? He says you, you tithe on dill and cumin, like that was actually abnormal, like that was going like above and beyond, so like in our day, that would be like, you don't just like tithe on your net income, you tithe on your gross income, you don't just tithe on your gross income, like, like if, if you like are raising in your garden, like you have a garden in your backyard, you start thinking, man. Uh, I've, t- I've tied on my work income, but here I have all these cucumbers and watermelons in the back, and God says give him 10% of everything, and I haven't given him 10% of my watermelons, I haven't given him 10% of my cucumbers, I haven't given him 10% of my, my squash, and so I've got to go back there, and I've got to go, I've got to take some watermelons to the church like now, or, you know, I'm going to face the judgment of God, right? And so this is what the Pharisees, the and if you want to bring watermelon, Aaron won't do anything with it. Uh, but John and I, we got, we got it handled, right? Uh, so so uh, th- this is the, the way they were, they, they were drilling down and they were obsessing over these minor little details, right? But Jesus is looking to them and he says, you're obsessing over nothing. This is like when, like, like one of the things that my kids like to do is like, if you get like something from Amazon and it comes in this big box, and it's filled with foam to protect it, right? Like, Gracie will pick the foam up and, look, Dad, look how strong I am, right? Like, yeah, baby. You know, like, you're going to be tearing foam books next week, right? Because lifting this big thing makes her feel strong, And this is the way the Pharisees were paying their tithes. And this is the way the Pharisees were living out the the small print, the minors of the law. They were lifting it up. Look, God, look how strong I am. Look, God, look how faithful I am. Look how wonderful I am. And Jesus is looking back and he's saying, you, Hypocrite, you brood of vipers, you snake, you think that you understand the law? You are blind guys that can't see what is right in front of you. You should tithe, you should do all of these things, you should not neglect any of those things, but that's not what any of this is about. This is about faithfulness, this is about mercy, this is about loving God. That is the weighty law, uh, this that is the weighty matters of the law, and you have. Have missed it. You have missed it all. You have missed the reason that you give. You have missed the purpose of generosity. You have missed the aim of every single bit of it. You see, what the Pharisees liked is the Pharisees liked measurable godliness. Measurable godliness. They liked ways that they could go and look on a spreadsheet and say, Yeah, look how godly I am. They liked to look back over a giving statement and say, Obviously, I am godly. But when it came to issues of the heart, when it came to issues that you can't measure, when it came to things that you can't calculate, their hearts were vacant. And it turns out those are the things that mean the most to God. Those are the things that matter most to Him. Because what is more difficult? To write a check or to forgive? What is more more difficult? To 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 not to, to obey the Sabbath or to be faithful. Do you like measurable godliness? Do you make yourself feel better about your hypocrisy by looking at all of the measurables? What's in your heart? What's in your heart? Don't tell me about your measurables. Don't tell me about your giving statement. You should not neglect those things Jesus says, but tell me about your worship. Tell me about your worship. Tell me about your intimacy with God. Tell me about your nearness with God. Tell me about your hunger for God. Tell me about your passion for God. Tell me about that. Do you love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself? Tell me about that. You can't put that in a spreadsheet, man. Next, Jesus says, you see how these are building. He says, you worry so much about purifying everything, cleaning everything, that the outside of your cup, it looks sterling, it looks spectacular, but but inwardly, your cup is filled with greed and self-indulgence, that you are like a whitewashed tomb See before the Passover before the Passover they had all these tombs in Israel all the tombs in Israel and you had all these things that you couldn't do you couldn't touch or it would defile you and you were you were then disqualified from from worship and the thing that would most defile you the thing that would make you most unclean before God was if you would touch a corpse and so before the Passover what the men of Israel would do is they would go and they would paint All of the tombs with a a lime plaster so that the tombs and the memorials of the people of Israel would stand out almost fluorescent white against the the dark backdrop of the ancient Near East in Palestine. And these memorials would stand out and they would be beautiful and sterling. And it would just be apparently clean. Jesus looked at these Pharisees, and He may be looking at us, and He would say, This is your life. You are focused on cold, religious externalism. That you make sure that you've got the right clothes. You make sure that you know the right answers. You make sure that you're carrying the right book. On the outside, you're beautiful. On the outside, your clothes are pressed. On the outside, it looks like your family has it all together. On the outside, you have all of the right credentials. On the outside, you have all of the right attendance numbers. On the outside, you have all of the right measurables. But behind, behind the tomb, when you roll away the stone, there is nothing there but a corpse. There's nothing there but dead bones. This morning, if you find yourself as a religious fake, You don't need to try harder. You don't need to try harder. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. I want to ask you a question. I don't have a good illustration for it. I don't have an eloquent way of of putting it. Are you inwardly alive? Are you inwardly alive? You see, the Pharisees what we see about the Pharisees and what we know about the hypocrites is that the Pharisees were outwardly spotless but inwardly dead. The Pharisees were outwardly spotless but inwardly dead. What about you? What about you? Are you inwardly alive? Don't start thinking about all of your measurables. Don't start telling me about your church attendance. Don't start telling me about your giving record. Don't start thinking about your church office. Don't start thinking about your reputation. No, in your heart, in your spirit, just you and God before the face of God alone, before the judgment seat of the Lord, when he looks down at you, something that I can't answer for you, your husband can't answer for you, your mom and dad can't answer for you. Are you alive? Are you alive? You may have spent your entire life trying to convince yourself that you're okay. You may have spent your entire life trying to convince other people that you're okay. But this morning, be honest with yourself. Get past all of the self-deception and all of the self-justification and be truthful before God. Are you alive? You don't need to try harder. You don't need to do more. In fact, brother, you can't fix yourself. You need to be born again. You need a new heart. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. So he lands on this crescendo. He lands on this crescendo. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. As you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from time, town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of, of the righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He stops so much as describing them as describing the future if they continue on this path. He says, you thought you were different. See, every generation is guilty of generational snobbery. Every generation is guilty of generational snobbery. We believe that we have to fix all the problems that were handed over to us, and then we lament the generation that's coming after us because they're going to break everything that we just fixed, right? Every single one of us. We have to fix what mama and daddy did, and then we have to just brace the world for what our kids are about to do. And the Pharisees were no different. They look back over the history of the people of Israel and they would think, how could they? How could they? How could they have murdered all of the prophets? How could they have done all of these things? Oh God, if it had been us, it would have been different. And Jesus is saying, you think you wouldn't have murdered the prophets? You're about to murder the great prophet. You're about to send me to the cross and nail me with my arms spread. And you say that it would be different. In fact, in Matthew chapter 27, they will say, own our heads and own our children's head too. May his blood be counted and Jesus says and it will you will feel the full measure of God's wrath stored up from the very first murder of Abel to the very last murder of Zechariah you will know I will send my disciples I will send my missionaries I will send my apostles and you will persecute them and you will destroy them and you will murder them too and desolation will come upon the people of Israel Oh, but that won't be the last word. That won't be the last word. You're going to shout in just a few days, just in three days, you're going to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. If you would have listened to me, I would have gathered you in like a hen, gathering her brood. I wanted to draw you together. I wanted to love you and know you and and have you bound together. But in three days, you will shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, but Israel, scribe, Pharisee, hypocrite, you hear me now. This will not be the last word because another day is coming and i will return and on that day you will say one way or the other blessed be the name of the lord brothers and sisters the opportunity is before us this morning one day we will say blessed be the name of the lord And he has come so that we might be gathered together beneath his cross and beneath his grace and know his kindness. But let us repent. Let us come and get new life. Let us turn from our religious fakeness and our religious hypocrisy and turn to Christ. That today, not later, not on that day, but today we might proclaim, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray together, brothers and sisters.